Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Hill, who has 28 years experience as a clinical dietitian, academic and researcher. She has a PhD in physiology in the area of critical care nutrition, and she has special interests in nutritional support in the critically ill adults, trauma patients, and difficult to treat surgical GIT patients. Dr. Hill is the founder of Critical Point, which is a critical care nutrition consultancy. It's an amazing consultancy that provides training, research, scientific support, clinical care, practice standards, as well as clinical mentoring for young dietitians. If you're wanting to find more information about Critical Point, you can go to www.criticalpoint.co.za. In this episode, we discuss fiber and its role in the critically ill patient. What does the evidence say and how do we use it to have the benefits with these patients? This episode is proudly supported by Nutrisha. And thanks again for, for listening. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. It's a warm welcome to Dr. Hill. Hello, Omi. Thank you so much for having me. I must say, I've been a fan of your work and all of your, your busyness with when it comes to clinical updates and keeping dietitians abreast with all the latest information. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, no, it's my pleasure to be here. And, and it's also my passion to be able to share knowledge and um, assist people with their clinical queries and the quality of clinical care that they give. So it's really nice to, to be included in your podcast. Thank you. So... The reason I had reached out to you was that I was wanting to gain more information for the listeners when it comes to fiber, but specifically fiber in the enteral nutrition for the critically ill patient. Yes, I think so, it's a big, uh, big topic area and something that's gaining a lot more interest as well. Yeah, so we know that for the dietitians that work in critical care, one of the biggest things is enteral intolerance. And I thought that it would be fitting that we find some sort of, uh, you know, something in their toolbox that they could utilize when they have those patients. But if we could take a step back firstly and take us back to basics, could you help us understand the different types of fibers and their role maybe? Yes, so there are two main classes of fiber. Um, although there are subtypes within those two categories, but broadly speaking, there are two main categories, soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. And that obviously describes how they behave in an aqueous environment or in a liquid um, or in a liquid containing body fluid like um, inside the gut in combination with digestive enzymes and gastric secretions and so on. So if we look at a little bit what the role of those two different or how those two different types of fiber behave, soluble fibers tend to form a gel in an aqueous medium. And as a result, they tend to slow down digestion and absorption, slow down gut transit, these fibers also are very fermentable. So they're able to be metabolized by flora within the gut microbiome. And that has its own biological and physiological effects, which can be beneficial. 
Um, so these fibers are useful for reducing glucose rate of absorption. So they're useful for glycemic control. They can also reduce cholesterol, improve diarrhea, or at least improve the form of a stool. And they also have a role in enhancing mineral absorption. Whereas insoluble fibers tend to be more bulk forming. They also hold water, but they, they bulk the stool up. So they increase the size of the stool. This makes gut transit faster. And insoluble fibers have varying degrees of fermentability. They also tend to improve constipation more than diarrhea because they enhance gut transit speed. Okay. So, you know, when we're looking at it, what is the evidence when it comes to using fiber in our enteral nutrition, but specifically in that critically ill patient? Because we know that, you know, the insoluble and soluble work differently. But what do the studies out there tell us? The evidence is mixed and it depends on what aspect of fiber you are looking at. Um, so to an extent, it depends on whether you're interested in more metabolic control as a result of fiber, like, for example, improved glycemic control in your diabetic patients in ICU or patients who have stress-related hyperglycemia in ICU, or whether you're concerned more about gastrointestinal tolerance of your feeds or managing difficult gastrointestinal symptoms in the ICU. So there's a lot in there. And as a result of that, the, the evidence is quite mixed depending on what you're looking at. I can say that there are a couple of clinical practice guidelines that relate to fiber based on sort of assimilation of all this mixed evidence together. And for example, Aspen does recommend soluble fiber for the stable critically ill patient for managing gastrointestinal symptoms. And then certain subgroups of patients where fiber should be avoided. Similarly, the British Association for Parental and Enteral Nutrition have a recommendation about fiber. So does the Espen Society who recommend um, a particular fiber dose range of around 15 to 30 grams in enterally tube-fed patients. So the suggestion there is that you should be trying in the best possible way in patients who are suitable and will tolerate fiber to match the fiber intake of a normal free living population. Okay, and what would you say then is the effect of uh, fiber on, on diarrhea or how does the studies look? I know you, you touched on soluble fiber probably be, being a, a better option for, for those patients. Yes, and I think we must bear in mind when we when we think about these questions or when we talk about this topic that the fiber blends of different enteral formulas are slightly different. Um, so a lot of modern formulas have a combination of both soluble and insoluble fiber. And then some products are purely soluble fiber. So that will also have a slightly different impact on your patient. But if we're talking about diarrhea, which was your question, and, and maybe one of the most um, disliked 
uh, gastrointestinal <laughs> symptoms in the ICU, both by dietitians for nutritional reasons and by nursing staff for obvious reasons. There is quite a lot, again, mixed evidence, but quite a lot of, of evidence that actually supports the use of soluble fiber as being beneficial for diarrhea in the ICU. And it can reduce both the, the number of episodes of diarrhea, the number of patients that get diarrhea, but also in patients who do have diarrhea episodes, the duration of diarrhea seems to be reduced by the use of soluble fiber. And that will depend a little bit on different subpopulations of, of patients. But for diarrhea in general, um, I would say the, the evidence is quite good. That is a little bit different from constipation where there's less support for the use of fiber in ICU. So can we take a step back then? Uh, you know, we, we use the word diarrhea and I personally see almost a goalpost move each time you speak to a different nurse or a different doctor or a different intensivist. But for our listeners, can we clarify what is diarrhea? How many stools are we talking about? What volume or what is the objective definition of it? That's actually a very important question. And it relates also to why the evidence might be mixed. Because if you don't have a, a, an agreed upon definition for what diarrhea is, then one loose stool in a day might be defined by one person as diarrhea, whereas another person, it, you have to have three liters of liquid stool before it's regarded as diarrhea. So there are different definitions, but I think a helpful general guideline is three loose stools a day or loose or liquid stool of more than two to um, 500 mils a day. Um, so that's at least a working definition that people can get a handle on in the in their own units. Okay, so three loose stools, because very often, even after one loose stool movement, uh, you get a call to your feeds need to be changed. You need to come and review the patient again. They're not absorbing. Correct, and I think it's also very difficult to judge um, the volume of stool, uh, especially if. Um, there's diarrhea in the bed or diarrhea on a linen saver, it's, it spreads easily. It's very difficult to get a handle on whether that's a small or a large volume. Um, so I think the number of stools um, is maybe a more practically helpful uh, way to measure diarrhea. And I would agree that one stool, one loose stool is not enough to say your patient has diarrhea. Okay, so we know that the feeds are, are very much the, the, the primary suspect when it comes to diarrhea, and we, we as dietitians know that's not the case. But for our listeners, could you just highlight the other causes of, of diarrhea in the ICU? Yes, it's good that you said that it's, it's the suspect and often blamed, but feeds usually are not related to diarrhea in the ICU. The most common culprits for initiating diarrhea in the ICU are actually all the iatrogenic things that we do to patients. And number one in the, the categories would be the various drugs that patients are exposed to. And in that class, antibiotics by far are the most common cause of diarrhea in the ICU patient. But then there are other uh, drugs that will also 
uh, change gut motility or change stool form. And that includes prokinetics. And you mentioned gastric residual volume earlier. This is something we're trying to avoid, uh, avoid aspiration and pneumonia in our patients. So prokinetics are commonly used and are part of clinical practice guidelines for routine management of the ICU patient. Those can cause diarrhea. And then um, other drugs which are hyperosmolar, uh, including mineral supplements, um, liquid forms of vitamin supplements can be very hyperosmolar. And drugs which are not intended to be given in a liquid form, like crushed pills, especially those that have high mineral contents. Um, so those frequently cause diarrhea in patients. And then um, other things like contrast mediums for CT scans will cause diarrhea. Um, anesthetic drugs can also do that. And then obviously you have to consider the patient's underlying disease state or condition um, when you're evaluating gastrointestinal function in the ICU. Sure, it, it's quite, uh, it's always nice to hear that long list. If only, you know, th that long list can get as much publicity as the feeds get when it comes to the blame of, of gastrointestinal uh, intolerances. <laughs> yes. So, so if you're looking at it, what, how does the evidence look in terms of when we're using fiber-enriched enteral nutrition, if we're looking at things like GRVs, vomiting, constipation, is there any evidence out there or what, what does it look like? Yes, so if we look at, if we set diarrhea aside and we come back to other gastrointestinal symptoms, again, the evidence quite mixed. If we start with constipation, the evidence for the benefits of fiber in constipation is much less than it is for diarrhea. Um, so it seems to be more helpful in managing loose or soft stool than it is for hard stool. And that is probably because of the nature of the fiber blends of enteral feed, which are also given in a very high liquid formulation. The second um, a common research topic or clinical problem is vomiting. And I think this is one of those fears that people have that if they give fiber, it's going to slow gastric emptying and then patients will vomit or regurgitate or aspirate. And in fact, studies have shown that, that fiber can actually improve vomiting and that patients vomit less with fiber containing feeds than without. Um, so that also goes towards gastric residual volume, which again, mixed evidence, but it, it's not necessarily worsened by fiber and it could be improved by fiber. And then the other thing, which, which is a sl slightly off topic because it's not really on gastrointestinal function, but the, the, it's maybe worth mentioning that there is evidence from ICU studies that fiber containing feeds actually do improve glycemic control. And therefore you have to use less insulin in those patients. So that's sort of a collateral benefit that you might also get from fiber. As you, as you look at it, there's quite a few pros to, to considering fiber when, when treating these patients. You know, very often we, we're so worried about calories protein and you know micronutrients 
that maybe sometimes the fiber gets left behind in the thought. I think that's exactly right. I think it's it's a bit of an orphan <laughs> nutrient, <laughs> if I can put it that way, and that that uh, people feel they can take it or leave it. But I I think that because the the ICU is such a an antibiotic rich environment patients are constantly being exposed to antibiotics and there are question marks about the safety and the utility of probiotic use in critically ill patients at, at least septic subgroups and then all you left with as a as a barrier against antibiotic associated diarrhea is prebiotics or fiber in your feed so i think maybe fiber has not really been celebrated for some of the the non-GIT symptom related benefits that it might give you in those patients who are really exposed to a lot of antibiotics, which changes the gut flora population completely. Yeah, sure. So, and I see that the, you know, there's quite a few conferences and articles that talk along the gut microbiota and, you know, the role of fiber and how does it interact do you have any comments on that specifically and how does it benefit the critically ill patient? I think we're learning more and more about the gut and its, its, its effect in terms of critical illness. But is there anything you'd like to comment on? Exactly. Um, I think this is in some ways maybe even more important a role of fiber than just in managing diarrhea. The, the prebiotic load that you deliver in fiber containing feeds and the metabolic substrate that you provide to the gut microbiota when you do that is extremely important because it, it supports the population of normal commensal bacteria and they in turn suppress the activity of pathogenic bacteria. And at least in theory, um, maybe not completely proven in humans, but this idea of pathogens translocating the gut, or at least inflammatory material derived from pathogens in the gut that can cause sepsis and inflammatory syndromes in patients who are that critically ill is really important. And, and fiber is able to suppress that activity by changing the population balance of commensals and pathogens. The other thing that, that maybe people are not completely aware of is that, that the, the lining of the gut, the actual mucus layer of the gut is supported by fiber and that mucus layer becomes the habitat for commensal bacteria and creates this buffer between toxins entering the gut, inflammatory mediators and pathogenic bacteria interacting with the actual gut associated lymphoid tissue and the gut inherent immune system. So I think that the, the potential for fiber in changing inflammatory profiles and also by extension reducing patients risk of sepsis and infectious complications is still really at the early stages of being explored. So Lauren, do you see in the future more guidelines 
incorporating fiber in terms of critical illness? I would like to think they would. I think it it might be neglected at the moment, and I think it might be worth looking at the benefits of fiber more for, for critically ill patients and not only critically ill patients, but sort of subacutely ill patients, high care and post-surgical types of acute patients that we see in the rest of the hospital. Okay, and I see that a lot of the commercial uh, preparations that contain fiber, you know, they have a mix, as you mentioned, of the, the fiber blends. Is there any rationale? You know, it seems like the soluble comes out more favorable in, in the patients that we're talking about. But is there a rationale as to why the mix? Is it to try and replicate that normal population's requirements or? There's certain technical aspects that will limit or will promote the use of certain fiber types in, in a a mixed solution like enteral nutrition is. So I don't think it's only driven by the features of the fiber. It's also, there are also certain technical commercial limitations when you, or parameters that have to be met when you're producing a, a commercial product like enteral nutrition, which is very complex. Um, however, certainly the inclusion of soluble fiber is based on the benefits for diarrhea and other, you know, glucose control and other clinical outcome benefits. You know, I've come across quite a few studies where they've looked at length of hospital stay when using fiber enriched enteral nutrition. Uh, have you come across such studies and could you maybe comment on those kind of findings? Yes, that's also a very important question because this links the use of fiber containing enteral feeds to more clinical outcome markers, which is actually very important in healthcare and quality metrics that you're trying to measure your, your healthcare intervention against. And it is true that fiber containing feeds in literature have been reported to reduce length of stay, not only in ICU, but also in hospital. And even in some isolated studies have reduced mortality or have been associated with reduced um, mortality. And I think the underlying point about that, those outcome findings, which we maybe haven't touched on in this conversation, is that very often gastrointestinal dysfunction in the ICU is actually a proxy for something else in terms of worsening clinical condition or um, a higher risk for sepsis. So GIT symptoms are sometimes seen as just about nutrition or just about what feed you're choosing, but actually they are a clue about your patient's clinical severity as well, which is why outcome measures then become important. I think maybe just on the, on the flip side of that though, Omi, maybe we should mention that there are subcategories of patients where fiber is going to be inappropriate and that fiber should be withheld from. And that includes patients who are overtly hemodynamically unstable, where there is a high risk of bowel ischemia 
or poor perfusion to the gut. And in patients who have extremely poor GIT motility or um, ileus. And then also there's a question mark about the safety of fiber when you're using jejunal feeding, um, particularly in very catabolic inflammatory types of patients like severe acute pancreatitis. And those patients have been reported to potentially have harm associated with the use of fiber. So I think it's not true that fiber is good for everyone. There, there are probably benefits across wide population groups of critically ill patients, but just bear in mind, there are some patients where it would not be a good idea to use fiber. Thanks for clarifying that because, you know, the, the overall message with a lot of these interviews are, you know, it's not a one size fits all and we've got to look at the patient individually. And also it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the, the gut tolerance or intolerance being something that we should be looking at in the future as a prognostic marker for these patients. And because very often we just think it's related to the feed, it's got, it's almost in isolation, but, you know, if you're looking at the patient holistically, that, that could be a clue, as you say, to something bigger. Correct. Yes. Perfect. Lauren, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and thank you so much for sharing your insights. You've taken uh, quite a complex uh, topic because I see the evidence is mixed, but you've, you've summarized it very nicely for our listeners and you've really helped us to, to think about fiber in a new way and think about incorporating it for the right patient. Thanks very much, Omi. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.